This is an ABC podcast. Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers today. with your jumpers on. Countrywide, the politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello, welcome to Countrywide. My name's Megan Hughes. Thanks for your company. Today, biosecurity remains top priority for Australia's agricultural industry. We are living in a world with um, a lot of climate change and we're under a lot of risk increases for these diseases such as foot and mouth and lumpy skin. And our risk for these diseases coming into Australia increases all the time. Why Australia is falling behind when it comes to getting access to electric vehicles. Europe, US, China, those markets have that policy. They get first dibs on these exciting projects. And unfortunately, at the moment, Australia is being left at the end of the queue. And also coming up today, how Easter food trends are changing. I think some of the traditions, what we're feeling is some of the traditions around Easter are becoming more family orientated and event orientated. So given the public holiday set that you have and that real break time that people take, the connection to family, maybe they go away. But first today, foot and mouth disease is now endemic in Indonesia and it's been announced by their government. So this declaration is coming almost a year after this livestock disease was first reported there. Australia remains free of the disease and our nation's chief vet, Mark Ship, he says that this decision to remote the emergency status means that Indonesia is now treating FMD with a business-as-usual response. And he explains how exactly Australia is going to react to this. That uh, is not of uh, great surprise uh, to Australia. We understood that uh, that was a likely outcome when foot and mouth disease entered Indonesia, that it's a very difficult disease to grapple with. And um, having uh, an endemic uh, status was something that we had uh, planned for in our biosecurity settings. What does this mean in terms of the risks for Australia? Does this make it more likely that the disease could spread here? Not necessarily. Uh, Many countries in our region have endemic uh, foot and mouth disease. What what it means is that uh, the uh, country of Indonesia will remain infected for an ongoing period of time uh, and that we need to uh, set our biosecurity settings and our arrangements uh, accordingly and and not have the expectation that the disease will be quickly dealt with. That was the arrangements that we put in place with our biosecurity settings from the get-go. And uh, I I think we we just need to change our thinking from a sprint to to a marathon that we're we're in here for the long haul. The determination or the declaration that the disease is now endemic in Indonesia, is that a decision that's made by the Indonesian government? Yes. So you remain confident that Australia can remain free from foot and mouth disease? Yes, uh, we're we're quite confident that the measures that we've got in uh, place at the border are appropriate and are keeping uh, the disease out. More than 70 countries around the world have uh, foot and mouth disease, so it's not a a new threat uh, to us, but it will be an ongoing threat. That was Mark Shipp. He's Australia's chief vet, and he was talking there to Kath Sullivan. Northern Australia is very much on this front line of this fight to keep diseases like FMD out of the country. North Queensland vet and 2023 Nuffield scholar Regan Lynch was sitting on the biosecurity forum when this news was announced. 
She says while this change in status is not going to have an immediate impact on things like cattle exports, but she says Australia really needs to stay vigilant now. We are living in a world with a lot of climate change and we're under a lot of risk increases for these diseases such as foot of mouth and lumpy skin. And our risk for these diseases coming into Australia increases all the time. We have great protocols and we have a really great response plan, but we have to remain aware and responsive to ensure that we keep it outside our borders. How prepared can we be when, from what I understand, there's there's no biosecurity officers in northwest Queensland? So what, what do you think that means for our preparations and are you concerned about that? Yeah, it does pose a big problem for us. I think in terms of having people on the ground is the most important thing for our biosecurity. Not only does it allow people to put faces to names to who they go to in these situations and who we need to communicate with, but it also means that we have a huge part of our agricultural industry basically unsupervised and really reliant on people, producers and community on the ground to to initiate responses to disease, which is a huge problem, I think, because we need to make sure that the government is actively engaging in every way possible to ensure that our biosecurity reputation is maintained. We really just don't have enough people across this huge area to make sure this is um, that we're well protected and there's not enough vets, there's not enough stock agents on the ground now and we really need to have uh, a much more visible presence also to remind everyone about how much of a risk this is and how serious biosecurity is to everyone but to the Australian government and that people in the northwest aren't being forgotten about like we are. Mm. And you're also part of the Northern Australian Biosecurity Surveillance Network. So what are the conversations happening within that group at the moment? So we spent a lot of time talking about how we can make sure we're engaging on a ground level. We're a network of private vets. Um, so we're not actually um, employed, contracted in any way to a government response. Um, so what can we do as private veterinarians across the northern part of Australia and how do we engage with our producers and communities to make sure that we're there if something needs to happen and we're all across it. But again, we are private vets a lot of the time. We, we're we all trying to do everything we can, but we also have a lot of other things going on in our lives that we need to stay across as well. So extra support is always, always appreciated. Vet and 2023 Nuffield scholar Regan Lynch. And Dr Lynch is looking into cultural changes and attitudes towards farm biosecurity in Australia as her research topic for this Nuffield Scholar program. Now, keeping with this theme of biosecurity, you may have seen that there was a pretty large bust recently where 40 tonnes of high-risk foods, including turtle and frog meat, were seized by Australian biosecurity officials. They were found in a Sydney warehouse by quarantine officials in late February. And it really looks like this was a shipment of illegally smuggled foods. Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt explains exactly what they found. What we're looking at here today, as I say, is one of the largest ever biodetection seizures and detections in Australian history. All up, our biosecurity officers have found 38 tonnes of biosecurity risk material uh, in an overall shipment of about 250 tonnes. 
and to put that in context, and as you can see outside, that works out to seven shipping containers full of biosecurity risk material. Things like turtle meat, frog meat, pig's heads, beef material, prawns, seafood, all sorts of things uh, that if it hadn't been picked up could have been a very serious risk to our agriculture sector here in Australia. That was Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt speaking there. Biosecurity really has been at the forefront of conversations in the agricultural industry. You heard earlier with foot and mouth disease, Japanese encephalitis in pigs has also been an issue, as well as varroa mite in the beekeeping industry in New South Wales. An outbreak of a disease or a pest, it can cause massive logistic issues in Australia. And it can also mean that the ag industry loses its export markets. And all of this, all of this can have an impact on what you can buy on supermarket shelves. So it really is, uh, has flown effects throughout the industry and to consumers. So the question really is at the moment, and questions are being raised about how to better fund biosecurity to increase and improve practices. And it's not the first time that this discussion has been had. Back in 2017, a report recommended that the federal government introduce a levy on all containers imported to Australia by sea. Now, this is all to do with um, increasing funding. But at, at the time and, and, and since, it's, it hasn't actually been implemented Professor Andrew Robinson is the CEO of the Centre of Excellence for Biosecurity Risk Analysis, and he says conversations are really needed now about creating a better, more inclusive funding model. I do agree that, that the biosecurity system is sorely underfunded for the national expectations that are imposed, are imposed upon it. I do agree that there needs to be a considerable increase in the revenue that is accorded to the biosecurity system. I do agree that the biosecurity system needs a sustainable funding model. And to DAF's credit, that's that's the exact direction that they're trying to take it. But it's been a really hard road for them over the past year or so with machinery of government split and with the arrival of foot and mouth disease in Indonesia and lumpy skin disease in Indonesia. They're getting run ragged. I don't think it's just about the government. I think that there needs to be a more general conversation about how the risk is created, how the risk is propagated, and what the most efficient mechanisms are for funding our management of those risks. So some farm, some farm industries have done quite well. ABS was saying that uh, some uh, in the beef industry have uh, had their best sort of profits ever. Maybe foot and mouth beef industry should tip some money in the bucket for biosecurity because they're the one most most at risk. So I I, um, I, I won't comment directly upon that, but I will say that um, areas of industry that that benefit. Uh, largely from or in a, in a large way from the biosecurity efforts that are undertaken by the federal government would would see a, an advantage, I think, uh, to leaning in. And many of the industries do lean in very, uh, very strongly, but perhaps not all of them. The other issue, too, is that, you know, there's, there's a figure that goes around about biosecurity and foot and mouth disease of $80 billion, but you wouldn't, you know, you could reduce the risk of foot and mouth disease quite substantially by uh, kicking in some money, I would imagine, way less than, you know, a billion dollars. Well, I think that's certainly, I think that's certainly plausible. There are, cert- there are actions that um, farms can take and there are actions that peak industry bodies can take that will harden the system 
to uh, a threat like foot and mouth disease. So the figure you mentioned, the $80 billion, that's a pretty extreme scenario. And we, we know that um, foot and mouth disease would cost a lot less than that under a lot of uh, more plausible scenarios. It's going to depend if it arrives on, on where it arrives and how quickly we respond. So under those circumstances, uh, on-farm biosecurity uh, is absolutely key because that's the final mile, as it were. That's where the, 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 the pest you know, gets onto farms having already been perhaps in the area or perhaps in a port. Uh, and I, I, a number of industries have really powerful uh, on-farm biosecurity protocols and uh, other industries, on the other hand, uh, are much more patchwork. And that's an area where uh, I think individual farmers could really improve their chances of coming through a, an incursion um, with minimal impact. And, I mean, not no impact, right, but, but minimal impact, but also improving their protection against a range of other pests that, that may be out in the environment. That's Professor Andrew Robinson, CEO of the Centre of Excellence for Biosecurity Risk Analysis, speaking to Michael Condon. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. How does filling up for the equivalent of 20 cents a litre sound? That's what the head of policy for the Electric Vehicle Council of Australia says more Australians are missing out on because of a lack of a mandatory fuel efficiency standard in Australia. Now, Dr Jake Whitehead says that this lack of mandatory policy means that other countries are getting access first. And he says it's not just for people living in cities, but farmers are also being told to look at their options because there are more two-wheel drive and four-wheel drive ute conversions that are becoming available. He explains all this to Jennifer Nichols. We're at a really exciting point in the Australian vehicle market. We're seeing demand from fleets, from households, from farmers, businesses, really wanting to get their hands on electric utes. And there's no shortage of opportunity there for different models to be brought to the market. So the ability to convert existing petrol or diesel utes to be electric is one avenue to take. Uh, It's a great opportunity that is on the market right now. But we're also seeing seeing obviously from the ground up electric utes being made right around the world. We've had the first one come to the Australian market late last year from a company called LDV, but that is just the beginning. We know particularly in the US, they have a very big ute or what they call pickup truck market. And we fully expect that that will flow on to benefit Australia in the near future if we get the right policy settings and don't continue to lag behind those other leading countries. Just how far behind the eight ball? are we? Depending on which part of the world you compare with, somewhere in the order of five to ten years behind and that's really because we haven't kept up to date in terms of our vehicle market policy. The big lever that we're missing right now is something called a fuel efficiency standard. Most countries around the world have a fuel efficiency standard and what that policy does is it requires global car manufacturers to import more efficient vehicles every year and that improves over time. And obviously, the most energy efficient vehicle that you could import is an electric vehicle. So the markets that have a fuel efficiency standard, they get prioritized for electric vehicle supply. 
So when we're thinking about Europe, US, China, those markets have that policy. They get first dibs on these exciting projects. And unfortunately, at the moment, Australia is being left at the end of the queue. But we can fix that. We just need to get that policy in place. We've got a lot of work to do with fast charging station availability as well. Yeah, so certainly we've started to make some positive inroads there. And there's an expanding network of ultra-fast charging infrastructure right across the country. There's still a lot of work to be done. But I think state, territory, federal governments are working collaboratively with private industry to roll out that infrastructure. And I'm confident that in the next couple of years, over the vast majority of the country, we will have the availability of that infrastructure. It's not going to just be we put it in the ground and the show's over. We're going to have to continue to build that out over the coming decades as we get more and more electric vehicles onto our roads. But it's something that we can do that's already underway and we're certainly heading in the right direction. Dr Jake Whitehead, Rove is advertising its vehicles a 4x2, 47000 and a 4x4, around $60,000. How does that compare to other offerings? Yeah, so we are seeing that electric utes that are available right now at this point in time generally are a little bit more expensive than their petrol diesel equivalent. Those prices will start to come down over the next few years as more come onto the market and more produced. But we have to remember a couple of important points. The first thing is, whilst you might pay a little bit more for these vehicles, to recharge them is significantly cheaper. So it's equivalent to going to the petrol bowser and only paying 20 cents per litre. Uh, I don't know about you, but anyone else who you know could go past the station and see 20 cents per litre would probably be there trying to fill up as much as possible. That's the everyday reality of owning an electric vehicle and why it's such an exciting future. And the other point is that all of that energy going in to recharge the vehicle is Australian-made. Right now, we have tens of billions of dollars flowing out of the country because of our dependency on buying foreign fuel to power our petrol and diesel vehicles. When I was talking to Noah Wasma, he was saying that his utes aren't going to be practical on farms if you're in a remote area in terms of the distances they can cover. I think he's got a 64-kilowatt battery pack that can do about 240, 250 kilometres and a 90 six kilowatt pack that can do about 360 kilometres. That's not going to be a help if you're out in the boondocks and have a long way to travel to town. While it might be okay on a farm, travelling away from the farm is not practical yet. Yeah, it really depends on your use case. So as you said, potentially on a farm, if you're not travelling more than a couple of hundred kilometres a day, it could be the perfect vehicle, a really good way to reduce your dependency on that imported fuel and power it even through the sun that you can capture through solar panels. So I think for many farmers in particular, this will in the next few years be a very attractive option. And then when we start to look at those really long distances that some do have to travel, this is where the infrastructure is important. So certainly we will see electric utes that have a driving range above 500 kilometres. They already exist overseas. And again, we're just not getting them in Australia because of that lack of a fuel efficiency standard. But if we can get that policy in place, we'll start to see more of those models come into the country with longer driving range. And we then just need to pair that together with ensuring that communities in remote and regional parts of Australia have charging infrastructure so that they're not left behind. That was Dr Jake Whitehead, who is the head of policy for the Electric Vehicle Council of Australia. Countrywide, the voice of regional Australia on ABC Radio.
You're listening to Countrywide. My name's Megan Hughes. Coming up, one unlikely business is making waves and uplifting the lives of 5,000 coffee harvesters. But before that, what have you been eating this Easter? Mostly chocolate eggs and hot cross buns? Or did you head down to the fish market and pick up some fresh catch? Because it seems like these trends are changing when it comes to Easter and seafood. Because fish now is not just on the menu for Good Friday. According to Veronica Papacosta, who's the CEO of Seafood Industry Australia, consumers are choosing to eat seafood across the whole weekend. I think some of the traditions, what we're feeling is some of the traditions around Easter are becoming more family orientated and event orientated. So given the public holiday set that you have and that real break time that people take, the connection to family, maybe they go away, grab some prawns and you know put some crustaceans on the table. And I think a general pattern we're finding, especially with the increase of sashimi sales, is that um, seafood is seen as that convenient, um, very relaxed family option. So when you're feeding a group of people, you can throw it on the barbecue, have buy ready-to-cook seafood. So it really supports those family get-togethers which I think that is, is becoming very much a part of the Easter weekend. What does that mean in terms of what uh, seafood retailers are able to have available? Have they had to increase what they're getting in because of that the increase over the whole weekend? Gosh, so I'd be giving away my age, but I would suggest that 30, 40 years ago, <laughs> seafood retailers were, the, the window display that you would walk in to see was very much about fish, predominantly fish. So they would be focused on uh, filleting, and presenting lots of fish to cater for Thursday, Friday. Whereas now what you'll see when you go into most retailers and wholesalers is that they have quite a they have a broader variety. So it's a it's a balance between the different categories in seafood. So fish is still obviously important at Easter, but you'll see a lot more focus on prawns, crustaceans and mollusks. So it's, it, there's just more variety, um, which is great in Australia given the fact that we have high variety of different uh, products so people get a lot more to choose from. Um, Easter's also, uh, because we're coming into sort of new season fishing for some products, it, it does actually um, support that. Industry supports the high variety. Veronica Papacosta, seeing trends of, of fish over the years, is there a particular fish that you think stands out the most at Easter time? Oh, gosh, that's a really tough question for me to answer at the, from the TV industry. <laughs> um, look, yeah, it's the variety. Um, I have, there's so much fish at the moment, like this really nice variety of fish going around. I don't know what you wouldn't try. Um, I always say to people, just do a medley, a medley of prawns, do a medley of fish. So grab a piece of swordfish, grab a piece of tuna, you know, but get the variety into, into what you're getting, you know, your whitings and your snappers. There's so much going on at the moment. I think... Um, you know, just just experiment. Rather than buy a lot of one thing, buy a bit of everything. Do you have a favourite at Easter? I'm not answering that question. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very diplomatic answer there from the CEO of Seafood Industry Australia, Veronica Papacosta. She was speaking there with Brooke Neindorf about changing Easter trends. And finally today, a lot of us are starting our day with a cup of coffee in hand, but How many of us are actually thinking about the ethical implications of the brew? As the global coffee industry faces increasing scrutiny for pay transparency, one unlikely business is making waves, uplifting the lives of 5,000 coffee harvesters. Lucy Cooper takes you to Fiji for this story. When Luke Fryatt visited some friends in the highlands of Fiji, he watched as the local village children sucked on and spit out the pips of cherries – growing on trees all around the community. 
it turned out to be wild-grown coffee. Couldn't believe that there was so much coffee around and nothing was being done with it. It was just falling on the ground and going rotten. The fateful day over a decade ago has led New Zealand-born Fryat to establish one of the country's first agri-tourism ventures. In 2011, Mr Fryat began his coffee company, Buller Coffee. So we started in officially in 2011 and we were harvesting about 20 kgs of cherries from one family that we, nobody would believe us that we would buy coffee and that we would pay them for it. So we just started with one family and slowly grew it from there. We're now buying off about 5,000 people annually and we're doing about 60 tonnes of cherries now. The coffee industry in Fiji relies on the efforts of those living in rural villages to harvest wild coffee. But this has left room for exploitation. Mr Fryat and his team are hoping to change that by working off three key pillars, people, planet and profits. When we very first set up the company, we worked off um, three Ps, we called it. So that's people, planet and profits. And if any one of them grows without the other two growing with it, then we consider that the business isn't succeeding because we could be turning over huge profits and destroying the planet and not looking after the people that we set out to help, then what's the point? And if we're benefiting lots of the villagers and they're getting good income and we're not making profits, then we're not sustainable, so what's the point? So we work on the three Ps, and as long as they're all growing together, then we consider that the business is succeeding. Mr Fryat has introduced firm transparency systems to ensure all 5,000 of his harvesters are paid fairly. When we deal with all the villagers, when we buy coffees, we always give them receipts and we have triplicate or duplicate of those receipts so and we always say to them if we've done something wrong if we haven't paid you properly come back and talk to us we're happy to fix it up we're dealing with that many people we're going to make mistakes when we do payments into bank accounts and over the last kind of 10 11 years we've worked really hard to have those relationships with the people that are picking the coffee we know a lot of them by name we know their families we know where they are in the village and when there's cyclones or anything that hit we're always there to go and talk to them and figure out what they need and set up supplies for them or whatever. Diana Tou Domalailai works for Luke at Buller Coffee and has just been promoted to customer service manager. She joined the business in a commitment to change local females' lives. didn't really know much about Buller Coffee until I started working for Buller Coffee and I heard these stories and how amazing it is that it was helping our community, all the women up in the interior. And yeah, so ever since then, I'm so proud and never regretted joining Bula Coffee. It means that uh, women can be independent. Like um, in Fiji, it's a um, tradition where men are the breadwinners of a family. And to know that this company supports women to be financially independent, yeah, it's lovely. As coffee production has expanded, so has the story behind Bula Coffee. And it's one owner Luke Fryat wants to spread. Opening a cafe and coffee shop on site, without even intending to, Mr Fryat is now successfully running one of Fiji's first agritourism ventures. Coffee is actually the first company that started its agritourism venture. So it's one of the first and hopefully not the last. Um, yeah, so this is a new thing for Fiji and not really a lot of people know that we could actually take tourists around farms. And I am really proud to actually tell the stories on how Block Coffee started, like I said, and to know about the local beans or the local coffee products that Bullock Coffee sells and the story. 
Whilst Diana was showing me around the coffee plantation and coffee shop, two Californian tourists, Vincent and Vanilla, walked in. We were just doing uh, research, you know, Google research, like is there any local coffee here in Fiji? Because we stayed in Denarao and other area, like all the coffees are all like not local. So it's like, is there any local coffee? Ta-da! <laughs> here we are. The culture, like locally grown things and... Yeah, like things helping the economy of the local people, that's kind of what we're into. <laughs> and without forgetting our home, Australian researchers from the Australian Centre for International Agricultural Research, also known as ACR, have an important role in the future of coffee in Fiji. The ACIR gang have come and they've taken, I think, about 40 samples from the wild coffee plantations around Fiji. And we're now working with them to, to establish which is the best one to grow. We're looking for um, a high yield, but also one that will last essentially fruit throughout the whole season. Or maybe we'll have a few, one that fruits early, one that fruits halfway through the season, and one that's a late, a late fruit, so that people can get a longer income off it. Coffee borer is a problem in Fiji, and sometimes you get a bit of rust as well. So we're looking at getting in some um, through the universities from Australia, some that are resistant to those problems to help improve the industry as a whole. That's Luke Fryett, Fijian-based Buller Coffee owner, ending that report from Lucy Cooper. And that's it for Countrywide. You can hear all of these stories and more at abc.net.au slash rural. I'm Megan Hughes. Bye for now. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.